Who knows where Greg Martin would be if he were alive today? Well, he was a sergeant. He was pretty young. I mean, he'd already made the, he'd already made the rank of sergeant. Would he have been a police chief today? Probably, in a small town. I can see that. Of course, he never got there. Greg Martin was just 30 years old when he was killed on the side of Interstate 77 on a cold October night in North Carolina. And the people who did it were even younger than he was. And these, these suspects were 19, 20 years old. They were kids, what I would call kids today. They were young men, but very young. And they were on the loose. Police really had no idea who they were looking for, which increased the anxiety for Martin's family, including his daughter, Brittany. We spent a lot of time looking over our shoulders. It was always, I wonder if this guy done it. I wonder if they had the motive to do it. They wondered for 15 years, and then finally, finally, they got a break in the case. But it was old-fashioned police work at its finest. Old-fashioned police work and an enduring lesson. Never give up. Never give up. I'm Fox 8's Bob Buckley, and this is Who Killed Officer Martin? When investigators began looking into Greg Martin's murder in October of 1996, they may not have had a suspect, but they eventually had plenty of material. I was uh, a younger agent at the time. Lloyd Terry was the lead investigator in the case for the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. It was the most voluminous case that we had ever worked on in, at that time, to my knowledge, SBI. Not in the dozens, probably in the hundreds on the interviews. Uh, maybe maybe thousands, yeah. And I don't remember, and I want to say, and don't hold me to this, but it was, I think the, I think the case was over 100,000 pages. I mean, it was so voluminous, you couldn't read it. And, and that was some of the frustrations. You couldn't read through the whole file and remember what you read. There were no eyewitnesses. What they did know was that Sergeant Martin stopped a red pickup that he thought was suspicious around 2.30 on the morning of Saturday, October 5th, 1996, in Yadkin County, northwest of Winston-Salem. But that was it. He didn't say who was in the car. The suspects, it turned out, didn't have any ID on them. State Trooper Van Tate was the first officer on the scene once dispatchers began to worry about Martin when his radio went silent. Tate was a few miles south working on a wreck when he heard Martin's call. An experienced officer himself, Tate knew something wasn't right. And he knew that he had to do something because Greg Martin was not just another guy with a badge to him. Because Greg was just a dear friend. I mean, he would come to our house because I lived in Jonesville. Uh, and he'd come to our house and eat supper with us, you know, and, and spend time. In Tate knew not just Martin, but his family, including the son Martin had just six months earlier, and named Crew, spelled C-R-U-E, just like one of his favorite rock bands, Motley Crew. Their kids were a constant point of connection between Tate and Martin. Crew is six months younger than my oldest son, and we would get together, you know, on late nights or the graveyard shift, as you want to call it, and we'd get and we'd compare pictures, you know, and it was just something Greg and I did and enjoyed, you know, a cup of coffee and talking, but... Uh, by the time Van Tate arrived at the scene, all that was there on the side of I-77 was Greg Martin's cruiser with the lights still flashing and Martin lying next to it, 
with much of the side of his head missing. He'd been shot six times at point-blank range. Van Tate got there within minutes, but the suspects and that red pickup were long gone. And then for years, you can't find who did this. You know, we secured that scene, Eileen, and we secured the scene for the SBI. So nothing was touched. It was Van Tate's job to live with what he saw that night. I went home, and after being interviewed by the SBI, I went home, told, talked to my wife, had a long talk with her, and, you know, I prayed. When I finally got into bed, I prayed. I said, God, you've got to help me to get through this. Uh, you know, like they were saying, the struggle is real. And when you see something like that, and I said, God, you've got to help me, you know, put this over here to not have it in front of me all the time. But It seemed to be all that was in front of the small police department in Jonesville. But when Freddie Sloan was the chief, he told us... We've learned not to get excited about leads in any case. Partly because they simply didn't have the department that was big enough to follow them up. Jonesville has three full-time officers and four other part-timers, the very definition of a small-town department. When Tim Gwynn was the chief there, he seemed a bit more optimistic. I think uh, that one day that we will solve this case. It comes down to we're just waiting for that one magic phone call. We're following up all the leads that, that come in, uh, you know, but we're all hoping for that one magic call. They got plenty of calls. Few of them held any magic. It eventually became Lloyd Terry's job to find out who killed Greg Martin, and he quickly learned it wasn't going to be an ordinary investigation. Explain why it's different when it's an officer. I, I wore a uniform. I was a deputy sheriff in 1984. So uh, I did the work that he did. You know, I answered calls, made traffic stops. So I guess you think about it is that's a brother in law enforcement, but you've been where he's been. You've, you've conducted a vehicle stop, maybe with or without backup when you had multiple people. You know, you're thinking about safety, thinking about your family. Could you be harmed at any time? When you say brotherhood, it's a family. You know, it's like a family. And, you know, if you didn't know his family, you, you will know his family. And, and you'll grieve with them. Why did this one take so long? <laughs> uh, if you want to hear my personal opinion. Sure. Um, and, and I tell young investigators this, that sometimes you can't open those doors. You can't get over that wall because God above has not allowed you to do that at the time. I'm a man of faith, and I believe that once those doors are opened, then you'll be able to open those or get through those doors. In this case here, when everything came together, every door, every piece of evidence that we'd collected started making sense, and all the pieces of the puzzle went together quickly. But it's frustrating, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it is. It's uh, it's emotional roller coaster ride. An investigator, and I've did this for many, many years, and been a law enforcement officer for 36 years this past month. So, uh, it's just emotional roller coaster. You're on a, you're, you're up on top because it looks like it's, you know, it's the right leads come in, and you know we, we're actually going to be able to. But remember, this was a very different time, a quarter of a century ago. DNA testing was developed in the mid-1980s, but it was only beginning to become a regular part of policing when Greg Martin was killed in 1996. And even then, this wasn't Hollywood. Officers can't change the script to match their needs. They had to find answers in the real world in real time. 
as far as in Greg's case, it's very frustrating when you do have evidence that you can't match to anyone. It's not like TV, whether we have DNA or we have a fingerprint and we'll run it through the computer and 30 minutes later we know who it is. It doesn't work that way. It takes time. What investigators had going for them was the fact that a crime like this was still unusual, particularly so for a small town like Jonesville. So when something like this happened, the entire community felt it, and everyone wanted to help, if they could, with what little they might know. Here's Lloyd Terry again. Technology was changing. Uh, we still had physical evidence. There were still leads coming in. Occasionally you'd get a tip they'd call from West Virginia because if you think about it, this crime began in Princeton, West Virginia and ended in Gastonia, North Carolina. Which meant they had a crime scene with a radius of 100 miles. But it might as well be boundless because they really had no idea who they were looking for. Was there ever a point where you thought, we're not going to find this out? Yes, there was. It's, it's very frustrating to, uh, to a point where you almost think, well, is, is the bad guys, as you would call them, or, or is, there, is our suspects, are they deceased? That meant they couldn't ignore any tip or any idea. They literally went coast to coast on any piece of information they could get. If we had a tip, we called an agency and said, hey, can you run this down and let us know how this turns out? And maybe we need to come to you, whether it's up north or it's down south or out west. Uh, we even reached out to California. I think the pivotal point of this investigation was the fact that we donated one day a week, and it was usually Tuesday, and we had a retired agent uh, that was a great homicide investigator. And we came together as a team and we started working on it. And we got uh, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was, uh, was very instrumental in this, was, was able to do things with some record searches that we would have had a difficult time with. But it was old fashioned police work at its finest. It turned out a key was key. A key was key would be, would be correct. And you know, I've had people ask me, well, who called you and told you about it? Who called you and, and, and told you who the suspects were? Um, I was like, no one. And they look at you really funny. And, and, I, and I tell them that. I said it was uh, a key code. And uh, I think it was L1704, as I can remember, but I'm not exactly sure. The key code is the map of how a key is cut. Remember, back in those days, most vehicles had a traditional key with the ridges, the cuts along one side of the key that made it start that particular vehicle. Or, as it turned out, the codes weren't quite as specific as they thought. And back in those days, they would make a key code, and it may fit a Jeep, it may fit a Dodge truck, and it could fit hundreds of vehicles. And those vehicles are then distrib uh, distributed throughout the United States. Earlier, you heard Lloyd Terry say that this was a crime that began in Princeton, West Virginia. The truck was stolen from the dealership up there. The red pickup. It was stolen from a dealership in West Virginia, and two men drove it south down Interstate 77 and past Jonesville, where Greg Martin stopped them. So the investigators began looking at the records they got from Chrysler, the maker of the Dodge pickup, Turns out they keep records on all their keys. We had an analyst with the FBI who was remarkable uh, at Charlotte at the time and was helping us pull records and things like that. And that's how we zeroed in after thousands of, key, of vehicles we went through looking for this one key code that would match what, our, uh, what the salesman 
at the car lot in Princeton, West Virginia, I believe it was Ramey Motors, was telling us about the last two people that looked at the truck. So we used information from the witness to vet that, those vehicles, and looking for that key code. That led them to Florida, where they had a chance to talk to a man named Brian Whitaker. The first time someone is telling you what they say is the first-hand account of this murder was when you're interviewing Whitaker. That's correct. What is it like for an uh, investigator who's been going through this for so long to finally hear someone who sounds credible saying what happened? Well, and you, you gotta remember too, as an investigator, there's things that you keep close to the vest that only you know and a person at the crime scene and the suspect. And that's how you know they're telling you the truth. But how did I feel? Before I went, I was very nervous. And I've interviewed a lot of people in hundreds of homicides. And my prayer was, Lord, don't let me do anything wrong because this, is, this could be it. This could be what we really need. And I really was reluctant to even do it. But he did, and Whitaker knew everything. Whitaker said he and a man named Scott Sika had stolen that Dodge pickup in West Virginia, and as they drove down I-77, they decided to rob the Huddle House restaurant just off the interstate near Jonesville. Huddle Houses are typical 24-hour restaurants that specialize in breakfast food. A man named John Sparks opened the first one in 1964 in Decatur, Georgia, near Atlanta, so that football fans would have some place to eat after the big game on Friday nights. Since then, they became a staple of late-night eating, with more than 300 of them spread throughout the southeast. Most importantly, Whitaker and Sika knew exactly what they would find when they got inside. Whitaker told Lloyd Terry that he and Sika drove to the back of the restaurant because they thought they could come in the back door undetected. But that door was locked. They moved on down the interstate looking for a different victim, and that's where Greg Martin found them and found his fate. When Martin asked Sika and Whitaker to step out of the truck, Sika had a gun in his hand and panicked. He shot nine times. Six of them hit Greg Martin in the head. He never stood a chance. For years, Greg Martin's family lived with no idea of who killed him, always looking over their shoulder, afraid that whoever did it might be coming for them too. And then in 2012, Brittany Martin got a phone call. Yeah, I think it was October 3rd or October 4th was the day that they told the family. They called us to the Yakimville Courthouse and told us all to come down there. And I said, well, what's wrong? What's going on? And it had been quiet for a while. Wasn't expecting nothing. I figured they was going to tell us the case was closed. They was going to put it in a cold case. We get down there, and Roger Reese has us in a conference room. He looks around, and he says, now, I don't want nobody to pass out, but we are pretty sure with about a 99% accuracy, we've got the killer and we're en route to get him. And I looked at him and I said, no, are you for real? Everybody's mouth hung open and nobody really could believe the words because we had waited so long. Greg Martin's sister, Melissa Blakely, was just as relieved. Wow, 16 years. And we got them. Well, they had arrested Sika and Whitaker, but there was still a trial to come with all the gory details of how Martin died. But his sister sat through it all. It was hard listening, and, but we know what happened. We went 16 years and not knowing exactly what had happened, 
and and now we know doesn't make it any easier, but you know, we're finally starting to get some answers. Martin's daughter, Brittany, 24 by the time of the trial, was more interested in vengeance than answers. When it first happened, I used to go around and I was like, yeah, an eye for an eye, two for two. And I wanted them dead. And then I grew older. I grew wiser. And my grandma started speaking to me and she made me realize that, you know, that's not God's way. So i done a lot of soul searching, and I was like, well, God will deal with it in the end. It ain't my place. It ain't for me to judge him. He has to live with what he done. So you're a woman of faith? Mm-hmm. I try to come out here at least once a month. When I'm out at the small cemetery with Brittany as she visits her father's grave, I ask her if she wanted to see Scott Sika get the death penalty, something he never faced. The district attorney was asking us, if we were okay with them not pursuing the death penalty. And I was like, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that decision because I don't want to have to go through 30, 40 years of court and take a chance of it getting overturned. Sika didn't stick around for that either. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. We asked him for an interview, which he agreed to, so my photographer and I drove the two hours from Greensboro down to the state prison in Laurenburg, where Sika was serving his sentence, only to have him tell us that his lawyer had since told him not to talk to us. Within a month, Sika was dead. He killed himself in prison in April of 2016. He was 40 years old. So when you heard that he had killed himself, what were your thoughts? Do you remember? I was kind of, in a way, shocked that he did choose to hang himself, but the manner around why he hung himself, that was the part I kind of felt disgusted over. Just, uh, I was disgusted with the whole outcome of it because it just seemed like a chicken way of taking things. Brittany Martin knows forgiving her father's killer will help her move on. I'm still working on it. (laughs) It's not easy and I'm not gonna lie to you. (laughs) My dad's been gone for 24 years, and every day there's not a day that doesn't go by that I wish I couldn't wring his neck. But forgiveness isn't for me. It's not for him. It's to clear me just to let us go. I need peace. I need just to let it go. Since he wasn't the gunman, Brian Whitaker was able to plead guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to a little less than 18 years in prison. Whitaker remains in a state prison in Caswell County, North Carolina, northeast of Greensboro. He's projected to be released in 2027, when he'll turn 52. Since she was just six when her father died, Brittany wasn't told all of what happened. You feel like you've learned the real story that night? Truthfully, there's a lot of things about this case that haven't come to my knowledge, and I think it's for the best. There's a lot of details that I know a lot of the officers have kind of glided over and not gave me the full play-by-play, detail-by-detail, even though I've asked and begged them, borrowed and pleaded and begged them to tell me. They knew it was in my best interest not to. If I knew, it probably enraged the, the guilt, the hatred, and it's probably better off that I just don't know. But that leaves Brittany with lingering questions. Why dad didn't ask for help immediately? 
the actual radio transmission. I wanted to hear it. And they said it was best I didn't hear it. It's best I just leave it be. And embody the lesson she learned when she lost her father so young. Never take life for granted. You're here today, but you can be gone in the blink of an eye. Who Killed Officer Martin was reported and written by me, your host, Fox 8's Bob Buckley. Sam Walter and Keith Hale were our producers and editors. Our executive producer is Kevin Daniels. If you can, please rate this podcast and tell a friend about it if you think that it's something they might enjoy. That's how we spread the word. 